Hello, and welcome to The Right Side of History, a show dedicated to exploring current events through a historical lens and busting left-wing myths about figures and events of America's past. My name is Jared Stepman, a contributor to The Daily Signal. And I'm Fred Lucas, The Daily Signal's White House correspondent. And this week, we're going to be turning to a subject that I think is quite interesting, especially given the news of the passing of Ross Perot very recently, who, of course, ran for president in 1992, a Texas billionaire who was really, I think, one of the foremost examples of somebody running as a third-party candidate for president in this country. And so we kind of wanted to do a show based entirely on third parties, uh, their history, why they sometimes seem to not succeed, sometimes when they do, uh, and really getting into the history of that. Uh, first off, though, Fred, I think that the history of Ross Perot particularly, I think, is uh, very important. I think the man led an interesting life and he, certainly had a long impact on American politics even to today. He did. Uh, there are people who uh, in some ways credit him with the Tea Party movement, that sort of anti-establishment push against some of the Republicans. A lot of people credit him with putting Bill Clinton in the White House, <laughs> uh, splitting off a, uh, a sizable number of conservative votes. There, there's been some political science and studies and so forth that indicate he may have taken about equal number from both candidates. So we don't know for sure on that. But I think he probably in some ways had a big role in Donald Trump. Besides being both billionaires, uh, uh, Donald Trump sort of ran against the machine, the political machine in Washington. Uh, he just was wise enough to do it within the two-party system, which uh, as we'll get into maybe a little bit later, uh, that's what you for the most part, historically have to do to win a presidential election. But Pro, he, he put in $65 million in 1992, ended up with 19% of the vote, uh, zero electoral votes, but 90% of the vote, which is really big for a uh, uh, third-party candidate. And um, he did it again in uh, 1996, didn't put in nearly as much, came in with just 8% of the vote. And so, uh, but he did leave quite a legacy, I think. Yeah, interesting the connection with uh, President Donald Trump. I mean, he he Perot formed the Reform Party. He was initially part of that, which right. Trump actually ran Cons through for yeah. on the, one He considered time. running, yes. running excuse on, me, on, considered in running. 2000, and, and then one yeah. of the many uh, considered presidential runs, like I think going back to 1988, Trump started talking about uh, well, running for president and never did. So It, it is very Until. interesting because a lot of third parties develop could say that if there's some trouble within the two-party system, if you if there is some constituency that is left out, you can see a lot of turmoil ahead when there's a, I think, a successful third-party candidate. Now, successful sometimes is a bit of loaded thing. I mean, Perot was you could you could argue was the most successful third-party candidate, and still got nowhere near actually well, winning the presidency, despite well, having yeah. a major impact on the actual campaign. Well, in, in recent times, uh, yeah, I mean, he he was definitely the most successful. I mean, you you also had one thing I did want to mention. You've had uh, three former presidents who, hmm. at least three, who ran as third party candidates or independent candidates some way, and that was the one everybody knows about. I think is Teddy Roosevelt, uh, nineteen twelve. He felt like his handpicked successor. Uh, Taft had just abandoned a lot of his initiatives, and he uh, ran against for the Republican nomination, came up short, then bolted, started, uh, or went with the progressive Bull Moose Party. And he did, uh, he, he won 27% of the vote in a three-way race, 
he, he actually beat Taft, came in second place to Democratic fascist Woodrow Wilson, as I call him. <laughs> How, however, he um, and, and he won 88 electoral votes, I think. Uh, he, uh, but however, uh, he still stands, I think, right now in terms of most votes, most electoral votes, most popular votes as the most successful third party. Candidate. Yeah, and that really is interesting because, of course, he had spent, I mean, really almost his entire life as a Republican and had the name recognition, had actually been in office, and running against a man who succeeded him is certainly... I mean, it's really almost unique in the history of our politics. Yeah, but of course, right, right. Theodore Roosevelt was a, a unique individual. It does seem that a lot of third-party candidates, the ones who've had success, have had kind of their own persona that has been, I mean, almost Perot was certainly kind of a, a certainly a persona uh, when I was growing up. I mean, he was a, a unique individual, TR, a man who certainly stood out. But, you know, it, it's, I think if the Republicans had nominated TR, he would have made easy work of w Wilson. Yeah, that uh, does I seem think. to be like one of those counterfactuals uh, in history. Right. What if TR had united Republicans and gone against Woodrow Wilson? Of course, yeah. these things are The party wasn't really able to unite that year, I don't right. think so. These issues are always very complicated because mm -hmm. I think this idea that, well, is Theodore Roosevelt simply taking votes from one side of the ticket or is it both sides? I think those things are always complicated by the, the two-party system. So mm -hmm. I, I think that it's important in this discussion to kind of talk about the two-party system that yeah. exists today. Yeah. I mean, we really yeah. – it's basically Republicans and Democrats, and I think for most Americans, that's all they can That's all they can remember. That's all that's kind of been around. That's kind of been the binary. But there's been a lot of transitions in our country's history. I mean, that wasn't always the dynamic at the early days of the Republic where, I mean, even the idea of parties wasn't necessarily something that was universally accepted yet – now it's, George Washington didn't want any parties, really. Right, and and a lot of the founders had a problem against a uh, problem with parties based on the, the idea that they were factions, and yet the system seems to have almost developed naturally. Uh, it seems to just be a constant. I think a lot of people will kind of scratch their heads and think, "Well, why can't we get beyond this?" You have any thoughts on? on I that, I right? I think uh, I mean going back to um, not necessarily parties but factions. We had the Federalist. Versus the Democratic Republicans, the Jeffersonians, that was one faction or slash party has to die out for the most part before another emerges. And and we, of course, had the era of good feelings where you just had basically one party, uh, the Jeffersonians, uh, going strong there. But, um, yeah, I mean, for the most part, Republicans, as, as you've talked about, there's, we can talk about that a little bit later, but they were sort of sort of a third party, but they—, they were on the rise as the Whigs were about to die. Um, and uh, it, I think it's always, I, I guess my final point on that is is it's always going to be probably two parties. It's not going to be always the same two parties. And I, some of that, I think, is uh, the Electoral College. And I usually put the Electoral College in a very positive light, but at the same time, I think that establishes, um, makes things, it requires, and, and that's positive, you Actually, a positive thing. It requires broad coalitions, and I think that's what two parties require: uh, broad coalitions. Uh, the other is probably the Twelfth Amendment, which, to some degree, establishes doesn't establish parties constitutionally, but it establishes the need for parties, tickets, and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because I, that is something that distinguishes our system from, for instance, the Europeans. Many Europeans have a parliamentary system in which you have to form coalition governments. So you have a lot of different parties. Some uh, rather fringe parties mm -hmm. as well. I, it is interesting. Our system 
it both includes people who may be on the extreme ends of those parties, but forces those parties to create a kind of consensus, a coalition, but within the party. To a certain extent, it gives them a bit of leeway as far as action because they it is a unified party where there's one party in power or another. Mm-hmm. They do have unified action when they're able to bring about a coalition that can put them in power, I think does empower this kind of two-party system that you know has really developed almost from day one, which I, is kind of an interesting thing, certainly in the history of the world, really, and, and yeah, political yeah. systems. I, I do... I think it's remarkable, and we have the system. Obviously, you know, Republicans and Democrats fight a whole lot about a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. But for most of history, the idea that you can have one party in power as another party works to win elections and topple that other party—that's a fairly unique thing. That's a that's a modern idea. Most of the time, when one party replaces another, it happens violently. It, it happens mm-hmm. through bullets, that's... not through elections. And I think it's pretty remarkable. You know, you had in. 1800, you had the Jeffersonians the second replacing. American Revolution. Yes, and, and it is an incredible thing. It's something to, to really that we take for granted today, but has been a remarkable part of our system. A lot of other places around the world have emulated that, but that's how we've kind of succeeded as a republic. Um, but but getting a little more into the to the history of, of these third parties, Fred, I, I think that people, I mean, obviously we know about Perot, but there certainly have been some from the very beginning that have actually been pretty successful. I didn't want to leave this point hanging because I mentioned three former presidents ran, went on to run as third parties. Uh, also, Martin Van Buren, who, who, if you want to talk about that a little bit later, yeah. who was instrumental in parties, uh, modern parties, I think, as we know them. He had been a Democratic president. He was the uh, Andrew Jackson's successor, and he ended up uh, uh, running as a free soil candidate, the free soil party, an anti-slavery party in 1848, he only drew 10% of the vote which was, and zero electoral votes, which is not particularly impressive for a former president, but but he was a one-term president. So He, he was a one-term. I find the history of this to be very interesting, the, the development of the Free Soil Party, which was mostly at the time mostly former Democrats. But at the same time that you had that party forming, you had a bunch of other parties forming as well. You had the, the Liberty Party, James mm-hmm. Bernie, that was a kind of faction of the what the time the second party which was the Whig party in America was kind of these conscience Whigs who were very anti-slavery and you had a free soil party and you had all these parties kind of emerging as the Whig party starts to decay and disintegrate and you had a a rather rapid transition where the Whig party is the the dominant kind of second party it's winning elections they actually put some people in the White House to within a few years being entirely gone Mm-hmm. almost entirely gone, and being replaced by what became the modern GOP. And I think that is, that is. I mean, if, if there's, I guess, a success for third parties, I would contend in some sense that the Republican Party is the most successful third party in right. history, putting together the elements of the old Free Soil Party by Democrats like Van, Van Buren and a lot of old Whigs like James Bernie and Liberty Party advocates, uh, and putting together a new coalition based on uh, ending slavery and, and a, a totally new uh, set of a consensus that they they were able to rally around, and, and I think that, that I mean that was a long term process that took I mean really a generation to come to fruition, but that shows that it isn't always simply that there's two parties and that's mm-hmm. that you have two choices. It, Sometimes there's a destabilization. It is interesting that the um, anti slavery movement like just dawned on them that maybe you can be more successful if you get behind 
with one one party as opposed to <laughs> having a whole bunch of splinter parties opposed to slavery. So could be why it went on for as long as it did. I, uh, I, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, the other, uh, Millard Fillmore. We mentioned Whigs, I think. Uh, he'd been a Whig president. He was actually uh, the uh, aforementioned uh, 1840 election. Uh, but uh, he ran in 1856 as the nominee of the uh, nativist uh, American Party, also called the Know-Nothings, which— <laughs> and, which, which was interestingly enough, it was very anti-immigrant, but it was also anti-slavery. Yeah, I, there were a lot of elements within that party that were anti-slavery. I mean, they had various reasons for for opposing slavery. Um, a lot, some of it was just that slavery cut into free labor uh, in a lot of places. Uh, but weirdly enough, I mean, that part of that know nothing party, the, the Native right. American Party, did become at least some parts. Some were glommed on to the early. Republican Party as well. I mean, that's part of the how the Republican right. Party succeeded is that it right, brought right, together yeah. very diverse elements. I mean, yeah. you had old immigrants, anti-slavery had... Democrats, Free Soil, and Know Nothings were kind of all came together under this umbrella. Absolutely, yeah. and and it created the kind of Civil War Republican coalition that sometimes struggled after the war to hold together when the mm-hmm. party kind of, I mean, it was based on opposing slavery. Uh, what did what was that party going to stand for? Yeah. Uh, post-Civil War. And I think that's what the party developed over a long period of time. This is the kind of calculus that all political parties go through. What do they stand for? A a party is ultimately uh, a machine. It isn't the thing itself. I think Mm -hmm. that's why, especially today, you know, a lot of conservatives say, you know, I'm I'm a conservative, not necessarily a Republican first. And the idea that you stick to your principles and ideas before party, uh, does come into play. At the same time, parties have been the way that Political action has mostly taken place in this country, uh, whether whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like the two party system is is pretty enduring. All right. Um, a few highlights I think of uh, or high points for third parties have come like in non presidential uh, elections. A couple of them, uh, well, actually just one really in our lifetime. But uh, the Reform Party, uh, the height of their uh, we mentioned Ross Perot. Uh, their highest point was really Jesse Ventura, the former pro wrestler, uh, getting elected uh, as governor of Minnesota. So um, that was something. Uh, before that, you really go all the way back to James Buckley, the brother of the great William F. Buckley. Uh, he ran on the conservative party in New York and won a U.S. Senate seat. Now, he only held it for one term, So and Jesse Ventura was only a one-term governor. So Generally, third parties, if if they break through on a threshold, it's hard to you know, maintain that against a two-party system. Uh, going all the way back to the 1890s, the Populist Party uh, made some headway, won at, uh, about 21 House seats. Uh, however, uh, they eventually – well, they were powerful enough that the they merged with the Democratic Party. And 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 in that sense, I, I think that they, they probably influenced a lot of the – a lot of the – policies of the modern Democratic Party. Of course, William Jennings Bryan was the nominee of the Democratic Party three times, which is a direct result of that merger. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's really interesting with all this, especially when you talk about the modern comparison with with Perot and maybe Trump and things like this. And then William Jennings Bryan and Democrats in the early uh, early 20th century. I mean, you were going through a similar period of uh, that was, you know, industrial revolution. You had a lot of populism in the country that the party system wasn't exactly fitting the voters. Mm-hmm. You know, some of these third parties, even when they don't ultimately win as far as getting people elected under their name, they do seem to have an influence on the system. I mean, one way or another, they do affect elections. 
elections do change, coalitions change, and the parties themselves have to adjust based on the fact that there is maybe a contingent of people who feel like that they are not represented by the party uh, who do put pressure on that party to either change their message, include new voters, change their coalition. And I think this is part of it seems to be a part of the natural evolution of party politics in America. Uh, I think the question for people have is, is it possible for a third party presidential candidate to win? As we discussed, you know, obviously it's possible for a third party to win a governorship mm. or a lower level office. But I mean, it, what do you think, Fred? Do you think it in, you know, in this day and age, it would be possible for somebody to slip in as a third party candidate and actually well, win the presidency? It, it would seem impossible, but I, I I was one of those people who, when Donald Trump first entered the presidential race, I thought there was no way he'd win the uh, presidency at all. So, I mean, it maybe if somebody had a, a big enough name value, had enough charisma, uh, had a compelling message, um, uh, you know, I, I tend to doubt it, but uh, you, you just never know. You just never know. I mean— uh, if, if Donald Trump had run as a third-party candidate back in 2000, one one wonders. I mean, uh, the initial yeah. knee-jerk reaction is to think there's no way he would have won. But Al Gore and George W. Bush weren't particularly popular that year, uh, so I, who knows? Yeah, I mean, I, that's that's probably a good thing to to think in, in American politics. So many counterfactuals, right? There are, there are, and in American politics, yeah. while a lot of things stay the same, many things change as well, and. Uh, you know, who knows? Maybe at some point there will be a third party candidate to rise the service. Of course, yeah. as we've discussed, the odds are if a third party ever did win, it would simply replace one of those two parties right. and the status quo would reemerge. Right, 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 right. And I, yeah, I think coalitions would just shift. A um, couple, couple other uh, examples uh, of third parties uh, being prominent and playing prominent roles in the presidential race. 1948, um, you had some big players here. Uh, former Vice President Henry Wallace. Uh, uh, broke with um, the Democratic Party. Basically, was split three ways uh, after Harry Truman was renominated. Uh, you had uh, the the Progressive Party wing, far left, uh, nominated Wallace uh, and Strom Thurmond, the segregationist candidate, uh, broke off and uh, ran as the states' rights or Dixiecrat <laughs> nominee. Um, he uh, did not. Uh, and, you know, Strom Thurmond then went back to the Democratic Party uh, and then uh, shifted over to the Republican Party and stayed into the Senate, in the Senate until he was 100 years old. Uh, but uh, but both uh, Thurmond and Wallace won less than 3 percent of the vote. However, Thurmond managed to carry 39 electoral votes. Hmm. Um, 20 years later, George Wallace, no relation to Henry Wallace, uh, George Wallace, the governor of Alabama, uh managed to put together the American Independence Party. He also managed to win about the uh, about the same number of uh, electoral votes, I think, or, or, uh, and, and the 40 electoral votes or so far. So, so I mean, that that's something Ross Perot did not do. Uh, yeah. he, he didn't win any electoral votes, and, and that's, you know, what sort of what counts. Yeah, you know, it seems to be some of the thread here is uh, that strong regional candidates have more of a chance mm -hmm. to pick up those, those right. votes, whereas a candidate— well, like a Perot, I mean, he really had a national coalition, but you couldn't say, ah, there's this one section that really right. just loves Ross Perot. You were getting people that were disaffected all over the country in kind of a national. Uh, now, given, you could say maybe if there we had something like uh, the national popular vote, uh, somebody like a Perot mm. would have more of a chance as a national figure 
as opposed to a more regional figure uh, that have had success or some success in, in making a third party challenge. So mm-hmm. I, as we discussed with the Electoral College, abolishing it, I mean, may mean that you have more of these third party candidates that simply emerge that aren't just simply regional candidates. Uh, for sure. It is interesting, of course, that, that George Walsh ran as a part of the American Independent Party. I think some people get confused when they, they sign up for registration as they try to sign up <laughs> as an independent. Sometimes they, they're actually signing yeah. up for. I don't think anybody wants to register for that part. No, so. No, no. <laughs> so, but it is uh, a, a little bit of a, a humorous thing there. Yeah. But uh, Fred, uh, thank you so much. I think yeah, this has been a thanks. great show. Hopefully we've, we've illuminated some things about uh, third parties in American history as as something that while none of them have, well, very few of them have had a huge amount of success, they have had an impact on American politics, uh, sometimes long after uh, the party actually makes a challenge, a successful right. challenge. So. Well, uh, one, one thing about, uh, quickly about regional candidates, in theory, um, if you did chip away enough votes, uh, it could work towards sending an election to the House of Representatives, which is which is what I think Strom Thurmond had actually said during that campaign was his goal. So uh, that's... Um, that's, that's one, an even rarer uh, occurrence in, in, in our history. Right, right, right. That, uh, that only happened twice. <laughs> <laughs> only happened twice. And yeah. there was a lot of uh, people say that uh, our current system is not democratic. Uh, throwing an election to a House, I mean, the, right. even less democracy there when you right. have uh, basically just one House candidate from each state selecting mm-hmm. the president. Right. Uh, certainly would be interesting to see something like that uh, sometime in the future. Thanks, for everyone, for joining us on The Right Side of History. If you'd like to listen to past and future broadcasts, you can also check us out on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or the Daily Signal website. Also take a look at the Daily Signal's Facebook page for when we air our next program. And if you're further interested in our work, check out my Twitter, at Jarrett Stepman, and Fred's Twitter handle, at WH. Thanks again for listening. You've been listening to The Right Side of History, executive produced by Jarrett Stepman and Fred Lucas. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.